Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Please be seated. It is well with my soul. Isn't that a beautiful hymn? And I hope and pray that each of us can sing that uh, meaningfully and sincerely. And if there is something amiss with your soul today, that you'll do something about it. That you'll repent of your sins, be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, be added to the Lord's New Testament church. And I pray if there's something amiss with your soul today, you'll repent of that and make things right with God before time is too late. And so you too can sing, It Is Well With My Soul. I'm happy to be with you today, very grateful for the presence of everyone. Thank you for the singing, thank you for the beautiful prayers, the scripture reading. The men who have led us in this wonderful worship service, we're always very grateful to you, very grateful for you, and if you're visiting with us, we're happy to have you. Encourage you to come back and be with us whenever you possibly can. You're always welcome at Broadway. Broadway is a group of people, men and women. The New Testament church, the scriptures are followed. We preach and teach and worship according to the New Testament pattern. We're always very grateful for the privilege to do that. Sometimes I'm asked the question, why did you become a minister? And I think it's a good question. And I think one answer that I'd have to give is because it's something I enjoy doing. I do enjoy it. And I grew up admiring preachers. Preachers would come to our home and eat, and I admired them greatly, and I listened to great lessons as a child growing up. My family was certainly a positive influence on me becoming a minister. My dad encouraged me to become a minister, my mother, and a lot of good brethren. And I saw the need that there needs to be people who will preach God's word, that love people and love the word of God, and will preach and teach God's word. There's always a great need for men who understand the word of God and know how to preach it to get up and do that. But I guess the real reason that I would say as to why I'm a minister today is the fact that I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story, the good news of Jesus Christ. Good news, you see, is something that can't be held back. When's the last time you heard good news? When you heard good news, didn't that encourage you and invigorate you? Give you some enthusiasm and a pep in your step? Good news does that for you. Somebody's kids do well in school. And what's the first thing they do? They call grandma and grandpa. 
Little Johnny, little Susie's on the honor roll this time. We're so proud of them. That's good news. Now they call Grandma and Grandpa. They say, well, look, little Johnny, little Susie's in the newspaper. We're clipping, cutting that clipping out, and we're going to send it to you because of such an achievement that they've made. They got their picture in the newspaper, or they got some write-up in the newspaper because of some good thing that they did, and we're proud of that. That's good news, isn't it? Good news when you study hard for a test and teacher comes in and says, we're not going to have the test today. That's good news. And I can do one better than that. I had a Hebrew teacher in college who was kind of absent-minded. Studied and studied for a test. He came in and he forgot that he was going to give a test that day, and that was good news. And in my heart and mind, I was saying hallelujah, which is a good Hebrew word to say. We didn't remind him either. It's good news. Young lady gets a ring, puts it on her finger. She's now engaged to a young man. That's good news. She doesn't go around and say, oh, yeah, it's just another ring. Well, yeah, we're going to get married. Uh, he's asked me to marry him, and I've said yes, but, it, you know, it's no big deal. That's not the way young couples go about it. They're excited about it. It's good news. It's something that they want to tell other people. Sometimes we've said it that way about the cross of Christ. Yeah, I know Jesus died for me. Yes, I know. My sins have been washed away. But that's not the good news that we read about in the pages of the Bible here. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And he's telling them in this great verse, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Literally, the way that passage goes he says, as you go along your way, you tell people. You're going to make disciples. As you go along your way, you're going to make disciples by teaching them and by baptizing them. This is how disciples will be made. They will be made as you go from place to place. And you tell them about the good news. Another vital passage is found for us in Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16. It's a great verse of Scripture, and I'd like to turn to it, and I set it before you for handy reference. The reason for that is that there's a way that this verse is written that I think is somewhat unique. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You see, the sort of a play on words here in verse 15. I'm in Mark chapter 16 and 15. Proclaim the gospel. Tell the good news. But there's also a situation whereby he almost lays out side by side the alternatives here. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's almost like here are the choices to believe and be baptized and be saved. 
But the person who will not believe, will not be baptized, will not be saved, will, not be, con- will be condemned. And it looks as though that there's a comparison between the two. And when you line them up side by side, you see that it's a very important matter because I really am not going to get a grip on the good news and how good that is unless I understand what's going to happen if I don't believe. I just don't think we'll see the value of what good news is unless we see the consequences of not obeying the good news, of not accepting the good news. So he says in the passage, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But notice the alternative and the consequences of not believing and being baptized. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Somehow we don't value it unless we can see the alternative. And the alternative is very bad. Therefore, we give great value to believing and being baptized and receiving the forgiveness of sin. Sometimes that's the problem. We've never really seen the consequences of failing to obey the good news, the gospel very popular preacher today named Rob Bell. He writes a book, Love Wins. And in this very popular preacher's book, Love Wins, he's a denominational preacher. I don't recommend it. But basically he says eternal condemnation doesn't really matter because love is going to win. Hell is not that big a deal after all. How can God, who's all-powerful and all-loving, condemn people to eternal condemnation? It can't be that big a deal. And basically, his book boils down to a universalist type of doctrine. Everyone's going to be saved eventually. Everybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you haven't done, you're going to ultimately go away with eternal life because love matters. Love is what matters. But if there is no hell to be shunned, what's the good news in the death of Jesus Christ? If there is no hell to be avoided, then why is death on the cross and forgiveness of sin good news? I'd already have it. It wouldn't matter. Why would I be concerned about the good news or enjoy good news if it's not going to matter anyway, one way or the other, if all of us are going to be saved eventually? What does good news matter? It's only when we realize how terrible the alternative is. And we realize how all-encompassing and overpowering hell is going to be that we realize then this really is good news, that Jesus died on the cross for me and I can have forgiveness of sin and I can avoid those terrible consequences. Therefore, I love to tell the story to people to try to help them understand. There's good news out there. There's good news. Paul wrote by inspiration Romans 1.16. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I'll read verse 17. For... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Here Paul admonishes us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Another very popular denominational preacher today, John MacArthur, wrote a book sometime back called Ashamed of the Gospel. And in this particular book, he said, evidently people are ashamed of the gospel because they have changed it. Evidently some people are ashamed of the gospel because they have tried to re-engineer it. Evidently some people are ashamed of the gospel because they've tried to sugarcoat it and make it more acceptable and more uh, palatable. And though the gospel may hurt feelings and admonish people not to do this and not do that, and to change your life for this reason and change your life from that, people are hurt over that. They don't want to change, and for that reason, they change the gospel rather than change their lives. They must be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul in Romans 1 and verse 16 makes it clear, this is the good news I want you to embrace. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done. If you'll repent of that sin and change and obey the gospel by being baptized into Christ and living the faithful Christian life, you can receive forgiveness of sin, and that's good news. I enjoy telling people good news. It picks them up, and it encourages them. Some people are ashamed of the good news. They don't want to tell the good news. They're offended by the good news because the good news tells them that there are no other ways. There's only Jesus and his way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, and the verses, verse 6, a verse you can read from the pages of your own Bible. But that exclusive attitude is offensive to me, some say. I don't like the attitude that there are not other ways. I don't like the fact that there are no other saviors. Why can't there be other saviors besides this particular savior? And thus the good news is changed and twisted and perverted into something that God never meant it to be. And people accept it because they would rather have that good news than the good news that Jesus makes people righteous. I could pick out any person, I suppose, out of any crowd. And I could probably, in talking to them for a few minutes, find some good things in their life. This is a good person about this, a good person about that, who has a good attitude about this. And there's probably a lot of good things that are found in every individual's life. And it probably doesn't matter who they are or how bad a rascal they have become. There's probably something good about that person that we could come to see. But only Christ makes people righteous before God. And it is only good news that cleanses from sin. If I say there is no punishment, if I say it's all about this life, if I say it's all about attitude to improve my attitude, it is a dangerous doctrine indeed because it tries to change and modify the good news. Sometimes you'll see this. You'll see this on the web, the internet. You'll see it on blogs. You'll see it sometimes very charismatic and 
and very charismatic type of speakers who speak at young people's forums and seminars. Or it might be some kind of special gathering. And they're very charismatic. They're, they're very excited. And they want to talk about uh, this and they want to talk about that subject. But yet they never get down to the point of saying it is the good news of Jesus Christ that saves people from their sins. And our ability, our responsibility to obey it and live it day by day. Somehow they never get down to telling our young people you need to repent of sin and stay away from sin. Somehow the slick looking blog that's on the internet never gets down to the point that this is the gospel of Christ and it's the gospel that saves and it's what people need. It's what you need. It's what I need. They're afraid to tell the story. Whereas you see in New Testament times, they love to tell the story. Turn with me to an interesting Bible passage where that takes place. It's found for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's, I turn to that passage. You can read along with me. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come with a lot of slick, motivational type of talk or a slick type of presentation that used a lot of fancy buzzwords that would really capture everybody's attention. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I read 40 verses 1 through 5, makes it very clear that he didn't come giving some kind of fancy, slick type of presentation or some special blog on the internet that you could look at with a lot of artwork and that kind of thing, but the content of the message is what was so important. He's not saying this is a slick YouTube video presentation, some special twist on the words to try to grab your attention. He had a great career with Judaism. He understood it very well. He was a rising star in the Jewish religion, but he gave that up. He persecuted the church everywhere he went at one time in his early life, and he took them and persecuted them. Three times in the book of Acts, Luke tells of his conversion, where he learns about the cause of Christ. And a man goes to him and says, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Immediately fell from Saul's eyes as if it had been scales. And he went and was baptized and went into the synagogue preaching and teaching, Jesus is the Son of God. No slick presentation, no super positive type of message. You need to change. You need to arise. You need to be baptized. And you need to wash away their sins, your sins. Ananias loved to tell the story. And when he told him that story, and he obeyed that story, he received forgiveness of sin. It was the content of the message that he was obeying. 
and my speech and my message were not in implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I taught you the Word of God, and that is what will save you when you obey it. Now, I like the fact that people talk about matters such as this. People will pick up books like that, and then they'll start reading it, and they'll start thinking about it, because that creates an opportunity for us to go to somebody and tell them the story. Philip joins himself to the chariot, and the Ethiopian's reading from the scripture, and he says, I just don't understand this. Is he writing about himself, or is he writing about somebody else? And Philip starts at that point, and he begins to teach him about Jesus. He took that opportunity to teach that individual who was thinking and studying. And as people begin to talk about matters like that, I think it's a good opportunity for us when people ask, do you really believe that God is going to punish people in their sins? And you come back and you say, yes, I do. I'll tell you why. God who cannot lie has given all this insight for us into his character. And he told us, hell is your choice. There's a right way, there's a wrong way. You need to obey the right way. Now, it's important for us to go from this junction to how we tell people. Good news and the way it should be shared with others is very important. How are we going to tell people about this? Is there a better way to do this? The only way I know to study these matters is to ask, what does the Bible say? And so I turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'm going to look primarily at four points that come out of this chapter, and I hope that you'll notice them as well. And we're going to look at how Paul shared the good news with other people. And if we do it the way he did it, then we can really come away with the fact, I love to tell the story. I love to tell people. I love to tell people this way because it's such a thrilling story. And it makes so much means so much to us. I've been on the mission field in foreign countries and sat down in little stick houses and opened up the Bible with those people and I taught them out of the Word of God. And it is a thrilling thing for them to see the truth and turn around and obey it, just like they did in the book of Acts. They'll do it again today when we find people with true and honest hearts. Now let me begin this discussion with a little background on 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because that's where I want to focus. I want to learn how to do this. Not only do I want to tell the story, but I want to tell the story properly. How can I learn to do that properly? Paul is defending himself to the church at Corinth. He has just written a chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which talks about giving up one's rights for the spiritual benefit of others. Then he uses himself as an example in chapter 9. And he says in the first part of chapter 9, he says, you know, I have every right to be supported by the gospel, but I chose not to exercise that right. I have every right to be supported by the work that I do, but I've chosen not to do that. And he gives a very specific reason for that. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ, and the very existence of this congregation is attestation to that. 
I established this congregation in Corinth. And that fact right there is an amazing fact, that you could go to an ancient city like Corinth that was so filled with wickedness and turn around and a church of the Lord be there, worshiping God faithfully every first day of the week. He says, you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. In other words, you know, at that day and time, they could bestow, apostles could, the um, laying on of the apostles' hands upon certain individuals and receive the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. They did that from time to time. Only the apostles could do that. And you see in this book, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, how that he writes concerning matters pertaining to the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, which they had in that day and we do not have in this day. He says, you are my seal of my apostleship. I have laid hands on certain ones and you have the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. I am an apostle. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Verse 3. They're trying to find fault with him. And one of the things that they're saying, among other things, is Paul is a mercenary. He does it for money. And he spends chapter 9 exposing that, showing how false it is. I don't tell the story for the love of money, but I tell the story because I love the story. One of the first things that I learned from him is, I've got to learn to do that. I've got to learn to love the story. Now you understand what I mean by story. My mother taught me when I was young, now don't you ever tell stories. And what she meant by that was fabrications and lies and things that weren't true. But the story we're talking about today is a true story. Every word of it. He says, beginning in verse 12, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I didn't take anything for preaching from you, because I didn't want there to be an obstacle for you to obey the gospel. A hindrance putting you between that and the truth of God's word. And so I would forego my right in taking financial substance from you so that you would obey the gospel and you wouldn't be hindered in it. Here's a man who loves the story and he would forego personal rights so as to tell people the story and have people that would not be hindered by that story. You and I have got to learn to love the story like that. It is not just another story. It is a story of a suffering Savior who came and sacrificed himself for us so that we could have eternal life. And we've got to learn to love it. And the more we study it, the more we read about it, the more we're going to come to understand that it is the greatest story ever told. Verse 14 of this paragraph says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I had every right to receive financial remuneration from you, but I chose not to because I love the story too much. I'd rather have you believe the story rather than for you to create some kind of obstacle 
preventing you from obeying it and living it. How well do you love the story? It's only when we love the story that we're going to love to tell the story. The true story. The way it actually happened. Not some kind of historical fabrication. Not a adding this and taking away that. But the real, live, true story of a suffering ser servant, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. For you know the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. We've got to learn to love this story, the greatest of all possible stories. Paul in this paragraph tells us that we've got to be willing to tell the story. And he makes mention of that in verses 15 through 18. And basically, to sum up that paragraph, he's trying to say, I'm obligated to tell the story. I can't do otherwise. I would fear for my soul if I did not tell this story. And we've got to somehow implement that attitude within ourselves. I willingly want to tell this story. He is saying it's such a true story. It's done so much for me. I have to tell it to others. I really must do it. He says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. God's given me this responsibility. To talk about it as a stewardship is to say, I'm the servant and he's the master. And the master's given me a job to do and I've got to do it. Somehow we've got to put that heart and that attitude into ourselves and be willing to tell the story. That is the true story. And that it is the one that everyone needs to hear. And I'm willing to tell it. One of the things I see Paul saying in the last portion of this chapter, paragraph, verses 19 through 23, he connects with people to tell the story. Notice how he says that. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I want you to notice how he uses that word win there. And there are two words that are synonymous. He uses this word win five times in the paragraph. Let's study it some more. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. What does he mean win? To those outside the law, became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of Christ, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He uses the word win five times. 
What he means by win is save them. What he means in the paragraph is, I accommodated myself to them so as to win them. I connected with these people so that they would give me the opportunity to teach them. He is not compromising his faith, and he's certainly not embracing any sinful activity. But he is saying, I am connecting with people, whether it be the Jew, I became a Jew. What do you mean you became a Jew? Weren't you already a Jew? Biologically speaking, yes. But I accommodated myself to them so as to win them as much as he could without compromising himself or without being in sin, he would be with them to win them. And those without the law. He's talking about the Gentiles. Well, what do you mean by winning the Gentiles and becoming a Gentile? Well, I accommodated myself to be like them, not to compromise faith or to engage in any sin, but as much as he could. He accommodated himself so that he could connect with them and win them, save them. They didn't go out to hear the great apostle Paul. He went to them to win them. Because he knew, Jesus said, as you go along the way, make disciples of every creature. For us to learn to love to tell the story, we're going to have to connect with people. We're going to have to teach them and show them that we're genuinely interested in them. That God loves them and so do we. That God is concerned about their souls and so are we. That God wants them to receive forgiveness of sin and enjoy the blessings of heaven and so do we. We want to help you understand the will of God and help you obey God's will and be saved. Before we can love to tell the story, we must connect with people. Not think of ourselves as being better than everybody else. Not think of ourselves as having some kind of pious indifference toward the other. But thinking and realizing I myself was a sinner and lived a sinful lifestyle. But I've heard a greater calling and a greater message, and I want you to understand it as well. He has one more paragraph in this chapter, and it's one that you and I need to think about carefully. Let me read it briefly. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, the interesting thing about the analogy is that they're in a race, physically there's only one winner. But every faithful participant in this spiritual race can be a winner. You can run. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to win. If you fall out and fall by the wayside, you're going to be lost. But if you continue faithfully, you may obtain the prize as well. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You see, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now I'm reading verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. King James uses the word castaway. Verse 27. 
And you ought to mark this last paragraph. And what is he saying? But let's live the faithful Christian life. An athlete must exercise self-control. An athlete must deny himself certain things that he might otherwise like to engage in. But an athlete knows that the prize is out there to be won. And he must let those things go because he values the prize more than any other. Thus he follows a self-sacrificial kind of life. And Paul says, I discipline my body, verse 27, and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I can be lost in this if I'm not faithful to God and God's word. Before we can love to tell the story, we've got to live lives worthy of the gospel because the world is watching us. And they're watching what kind of life that we live. And they watch how we act. And they watch how we react. And they watch what we say. And they watch what we do. And our influence on others is so fragile. We must be very careful to always live the faithful Christian life as it is depicted in the pages of the New Testament. To love to tell the story means I've got to live the story. And herein is the enigma Because nobody can live it perfectly. Every one of us will make mistakes along the way. And even though we love the story and we're trying to live the Christian life, no one can do it perfectly. We can never live up to the life that we're taught in the pages of the Bible. And that's the wonderful thing about God's grace that I can repent of my sins and pray to God for forgiveness and receive it and start all over again. But I've got to do my very best to discipline my body and live the faithful Christian life so that others who see me will see Christ and God living in me. I love to tell the story of forgiveness and salvation, which can be yours if we obey the gospel and not be ashamed of it by repenting of our sins and confessing our faith in Christ, by being baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins, Acts 2 verse 38, added to the Lord's New Testament church, living the faithful Christian life as we go along the way, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, tell others about good news. Won't you begin that walk today? Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.